Bartholomew Town is available on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Bartholomew Town Podcast. So he hired me with the mustache and the trench coat, and he said, go out and get him. And I wanted the job, so I did. Uh, I was kind of the first guy to do walking stand-ups over here. I, I brought kind of a whole different style to Rhode Island News. And uh, thankfully, I was young enough at the time to not listen to the critics uh, who said, well, we're not sure this is right for Channel 10. I outlived all of them. Welcome in to another edition of the Bartholomew Town Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Bartholomew. On today's episode, my conversation with Mr. 401, Gene Valicente. Gene Valicente is a Rhode Island legend, a longtime media personality who serves as the 6 o'clock newscast anchor on the market's television leader, WJAR-NBC10, as well as the morning drive host on the region's leading news talk radio station, WPRO. All right, coming up on Saturday, June 8th, closing in on Bartholomew Town Live at PVD Fest. We'll be over on the arcade stage from 3 to 5.30 p.m. with a live podcast and performances from some of your favorite Rhode Island influencers. Saturday, June 8th, Bartholomew Town Live at PVD Fest. For complete festival info, visit pvdfest.com or follow me on Twitter at Bill Bartholomew. All right, without further ado, my conversation with Gene Valicente. Native of Weehawken, New Jersey, which is right across from Manhattan, famous for the Lincoln Tunnel and Alexander Hamilton's murder. Yep, the dual site. I used to walk my dog around the corner right past the Hamilton site, which has now become even more popular with the, the play Hamilton. So I go back home to visit my mother, and there's a bunch of tourists now right. walking around where I used to walk my dog. When did you end up in Rhode Island? Because I remember you, the mustachio days, yep. and <laughs> as a field reporter on 10, I was glued to 10 as a kid growing up in the woods. Now, you're, gonna, now you're not going to tell me you grew up with me. Yeah, exactly. I hear that from kids yeah, now. Uh, well, I watched you as a kid. Yeah, I, I definitely did. You know, you and, and like, like the young, to watch like the young Mario Hilario yeah. montage or whatever on YouTube compared to now, you, yeah, we, we grew up with you for sure. Well, I'll give you the quick story. Uh, I always wanted to be in broadcasting. And when I was in college at Fairleigh Dickinson University, Channel 11 in New York was under pressure to open a New Jersey bureau, so they did, and I found out about it early, so I I went to work for WPIX in New York uh, while I was a junior in college. It was a full-time job while I was still going to school, and it was a lot of fun, and I got paid peanuts. I took a pay cut. I was working in a shoe store, uh, took a pay cut, and went to work for Channel 11, but it was in the New Jersey office. And it was kind of a baptism by fire. You know, they would have me uh, run out and get this interview or run out and write this story. Uh, and it was completely thrown into it, but it was a good way to learn. And from there, I uh, jumped to New Jersey Network, public television. And from there, I worked my way up the, through Connecticut, Channel 8 in Connecticut, Channel 26 in New London, and came to Channel 10 in the summer of 1992. Now, I only became, I only came to Rhode Island because I was out of work in Connecticut. I was doing the 10 o'clock news in New London, and the owner of the station decided he didn't want to do news anymore. So I was doing news on a Monday, and I remember signing off saying, I hope to be with you tomorrow. But it wasn't the bee. I was replaced with the juice man, an infomercial. <laughs> and uh, fortunately, uh, Betty Jo Cagini, who was our then assistant news director, lived in Westerly, and she would watch me from New London, and she said, maybe this guy can work for us in, in Rhode Island. So I came up for a job interview, 
and wasn't sure if I'd be here for 26 days, and it turns out to be, what, 28 years. Wow. So Rhode Island's been good to me, but that's the quick sketch how I got here. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. And, and but did you understand the dynamics of the Providence market when you entered into it? It was a volatile time in 1992, of course. I mean, was that... It was, was that another baptism by fire of sorts? Well, not really because I had worked in New London, Connecticut, which yeah. it's a neighboring community just down the road. So I followed the Rhode Island news. And I uh, grew up in North Jersey. And, you know, Rhode Island's a lot like one big Bergen County, New Jersey. It's kind mm-hmm. of the same mix of people, kind of the same mix of businesses. So I felt very comfortably here, very comfortable here as soon as we got here. Channel 10 at the time was the dominant news brand in Rhode yep. Island. It still is. It's the yep. legacy brand here. You entered into that. What was that like? You're in a situation where you're with Terracani. I mean, he may have been out of it at the moment. You know, legacy figures, Doug White, Ginger Casey. I mean, that's a, you know, that's something that is very specific to walk into as in, you know, the artistic yeah. portion of a, of a broadcaster. Did that help you shape your identity early on being around such big players? Well, you know, if you want to be in broadcasting, you have to believe in yourself because a few others are going to believe in you. And uh, you have to have a thick skin and the willingness to go out and do whatever the boss is looking for. And at the time, in the summer of 92, uh, Channel 12 was nipping out our heels at 11 o'clock. And the then news director, Ted Canova, wanted to shake things up a little bit at 11 o'clock. So he hired me with the mustache and the trench coat, and he said, go out and get him. And I wanted the job, so I did. Uh, I was kind of the first guy to do walking stand-ups over here. I, I brought kind of a whole different style to Rhode Island News. And thankfully, I was young enough at the time to not listen to the critics uh, who said, well, we're not sure this is right for Channel 10. I outlived all of them. <laughs> so I, I get the survivor story. Yeah. So you've kind of reshaped the brand and news in the area in a sense. Pretty much. Uh, you know, I kind of grabbed the town by the jugular and uh, was running around with the mustache. I guess I must have made an impression on, on uh, Seth from The Family Guy. Yeah, Ted, I under- Ted uh, what's his I understand name? I'm Tom Tucker. Tom Tucker, yeah. The inspiration for Tom <laughs> Tucker, which is, which is something to say. Yeah, though, that's it's like the Mount Rushmore of Rhode Island accomplishments. Yeah. One of them would be depicted in Family Guy, right? But pretty funny. And uh, now that I look at him, I said, yeah, that does look like me yeah. with the mustache and the trench coat and the whole thing going. And I think, I think the co-anchor is Ginger Casey, yep. who was, uh, came, actually came after me. Mm. I got here. It was Doug White and Kathy Ray. Terracani was here. Frank Collette, of course, was doing the mornings already. And uh, Gary Lay yep. was the weather guy. And then a, a short time later, uh, Ginger Casey came, stayed for a while. Great person to work with. And uh, Terracani, of course, stayed until his retirement. And Doug White, Doug White stayed until he left us. And uh, it, it's, been, uh, it's been 28 years of just a lot of fun, and it's good to stay at one place for 28 years. You know, in broadcasting, you're lucky to have 28 days, right? let alone 28, <laughs> 28 weeks or 28 months. I got 28 years. Yeah, it's an incredible career, and in, yeah. in no doubt about it. The trench coat, the mustache, right. I think it drew me in because I'm someone who came from, <laughs> you know, I love Sesame Street. I love the visuals of that, and then I right. love music. I became fascinated with the Channel 10 newscasts, you know, whatever for whatever reason. I'm pretty confident it's because of the character element that you brought. Then on the flip side of that same idea, R.J. Heim brought as well. Yep. Mario brought. There's a performance aspect to broadcasting. There's, there's Some people try to put that. To me, some people, 
in broadcasting will say, well, it's, it's, I'm a journalist first, that, it's right. all that, but I think it's 50-50, right? There's got to be a performance aspect uh, to of it. Of course. I mean, you, you know, these purists should go work, for, go work for the New York Times or go work for McNeil Lair. But if you want to be in local news or any form of, of commercial television, there certainly is a performance aspect of it. You want people to sit and watch you. You right. don't want them to switch out of you. You have to get them in your tent and have them stay so you can preach to them. So there certainly is a performance aspect of it. That's why anchor people uh, look the way they look and sound the way they sound. And likability goes a long way toward whether or not you're going to come back tomorrow. So there absolutely isn't a performance aspect or an entertainment aspect. Now, the word entertainment doesn't mean you're, you know, you're juggling and telling jokes. Yeah. Uh, right. You know, We go to the movies to cry. So entertainment can take a lot of forms. So it certainly is entertainment slash information. But you have to get them in the tent, particularly with 500 channels now and Netflix and the Internet competing. They have to get in your business so you could sell them whatever you're selling them. Right. Biggest story of that portion of your career was at Plunderdome. That was kind of when you start to transition to the anchor desk a little bit more, right? Yeah. Actually, uh, well, from the 90s on, uh, Plunderdome – Plunder Dome came a little later. Uh, we had we had nine eleven. That was a big story for sure. me. I was yeah. one of the first reporters down there yeah. uh, to get within the perimeter, only because I knew New York. And we hopped on board a, uh, a Providence canteen truck, which took us right down, right down the ground zero. So we were there very very early on. Uh, Plunder Dome was a huge story in the papal visits and the gubernatorial elections and the Senate elections and the president's passing through. So I've covered really the whole gamut. Yeah. In the modern era, I guess, you know, sort of once you were firmly established in the hearts and minds of Rhode Islanders, um, what's the day to day operation like for you? I know, obviously, we can we can discuss the radio show. It's sort of a relatively (laughs) recent development. But what is it like? What is it like being Gene Valicente in Rhode Island as you as you move about? I mean, you do people come up to you all the time? All the time. Yeah. Yeah, which is which I'm fine with because if they weren't coming up to me and saying hello and recognizing me, I wouldn't be doing such a good job. Right? You know, nobody wants to be on television and nobody watches you. Yeah. You know, <laughs> so uh, that's never bothered me. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'll be in a restaurant and someone will come over and, and next thing I know they're sitting down having lunch with me because they're talking about some story I did and they want to follow up. So I'm fine with that. I've never had a problem with any Rhode Islanders. Uh, I love Rhode Island. Love Rhode Island people, and I and uh, it, it's fun. Yeah. It is a lot of fun. When do you started the radio show? That was a few years ago, right? There was kind of a shuffle at – not kind of. There was a major shuffle at WPRO, shift yep. pivot in uh, creative direction, I guess. Yeah. You know, I had filled in. Every so often, WPRO would call me, hey, Marianne Sorrentino is going to be off today. Would you like to do a fill-in? And I'd say sure because when I started, I got into television. I never did radio. Uh, so I would go over there and fill in for Marianne, and I had fun doing it. And they had a great – reaction whenever I did it. People just kind of liked me on the radio. I don't know whether it was whether it was the novelty of hearing a guy on television on the radio. But I would do this kind of as kind of a regular basis. And uh about ten years ago, almost ten years ago, uh management at PRO came to me and said, Would you be interested in doing a weekend show? You know, because you get such great reaction when you fill in. Would you like to do your own show? And I first I said no. I said, no, you know, I'll sleep late on a Saturday. And then, and then I gave it a second thought, and I said, well, you know, I'm just kind of waste my Saturday morning, so I'll get up and I'll do a radio show from 9 to noon. Well, it was so successful that they came to me a couple of years later and said, would you consider doing the morning show? 
Now, that's a lifestyle change. Uh, but I was able to work it out with Channel 10, and it gave me a chance to branch into something else. And sure enough, it's been a hit. I mean, the show hit number one a couple of quarters ago, which is amazing for an AM talk radio show. We're on an FM signal now, too. Yeah. But for for a talk news kind of a format to hit number one across the board in its time slot, that's that's saying something. Yeah, it, it, it also speaks to, you know, there's no other show on the net. There's some great shows on WPRO, but there's nothing else that even flirts with that type of number. So that's a specific thing that you've been able to do with the WPRO yeah. brand, I suppose. We, we really kind of, we hit it out of the, I mean, when I say we, it's a whole team. It's producers yeah. and managers and people who want to give you a shot. But it's been a home run for the station and for me because as many people, you know, as I say hello to during the course of a day, will say, I, lo- I love you on the radio. I listen to you on the radio. And then I watch you on TV at night. Right. So I was fortunate that I was able to work it out with two distinct companies. Yep. And it's kind of two different jobs. You know, what I do on the radio is different from what I do on on the 6 o'clock news at night. On the radio, um, I'm ad-libbing three hours of radio. And it allows for news commentary and analysis. Uh, but on television at night, they hand me a script, you know, and I rewrite the script and I read the script. Two different, two different jobs, but I've been able to make them, both of them work. What's your process like? How do you sleep? You know, you're kind of like Boomer Esiason. You do Monday night football and then you'd be on FAN at 530 in the morning yeah. the next day. First of all, I never was a morning person. Yep. Never was a morning person until I took this job and I was forced to become a morning person. I've gotten as used to it as you can. I know people who do the overnights and early morning. They said you never really get used to it. But I've kind of come to accept it. So I'm in bed by 9 o'clock and it's lights out. I can fall asleep. Uh, I'm up by 4.30 in the morning. I'm at the station 5.30, 5.45, and we start at 6.00. So you would say, how do you plan within 15 minutes? Well, most of the morning show is put together the night before. All of the interviews are booked. The subject matters have been selected. And I've done the 6 o'clock news. And I've watched CNN up until 9 o'clock at night or Fox or MS. I've watched everything. So by 6 o'clock, I'm ready to roll. And then once the radio show is over, is it home to, to take a nap or well, something? Or what, <laughs> how do you get ready? For- I'm a little wound up yeah. for about an hour, hour and a half. Yeah. So I, I go home whatever I have to do during the day, and then take a nap. And I'm at Channel 10 by 4.30 in the afternoon. And I'm going through my scripts, bang out the 6 o'clock news, and uh, I'm done for the night. Next thing you know, 9 o'clock rolls around, and I'm in bed. Now, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, I have to do the noon news. So once I leave you, we're taping in the morning. Once I leave here, I'll do the noon news. And on Friday mornings, I tape our political show, 10 News Conference. So it's a it's a full slate. They're getting their right. money's worth out of me. Right, right. It's not like they got you for two and a half hours, you know, yeah. a day for sure. But it pays the bills. Absolutely. Right? I just put Absolutely. three kids through college. Right. So it pays the bills. Yeah, I can imagine <laughs> that in your position, you know, you're able to leverage compensation that helps raise the game. It's like athletes who raise the level of pay for everyone around them, right? You know, you're only as good as how many eyeballs are watching you or how many people are listening to you. And the more the bigger the audience, the more we charge the advertiser. And if you're the talent who's bringing him in the door, you say, hey, I'd like my share. And that's talent negotiations. You know, when Johnny Carson was doing The Tonight Show, people used to would get floored at what Johnny Carson's making. Millions and millions. Yeah. And Johnny Carson once said to an interview, he said, well, I just brought in $300 million for the network. Do I? Can I have my 
five percent. Absolutely. So it, it makes sense. Now we're we're nowhere near anything like that. But you get paid what the station thinks you're worth. Yep. Kind of putting on your analysis hat right now. Rhode Island, we're in a, a critical spot right now in my mind in, as a state where there's major surface-level challenges, infrastructure, education, all these stories that are really just regurgitated in different mm-hmm. formats over the last few years. What's this? What do you believe is the epicenter of where change needs to be implemented? Is it the type of people that we're putting forth as elected officials? Is it more of a ground game within communities? I mean, where does that start to get things moving in what would seem to be a more positive direction? I've told a couple of politicians this, including the governor. Rhode Island needs a mechanic. Uh, We don't need a professor. We don't need a policy wonk. We need a mechanic. We need someone to get the garbage collected, the potholes filled, and the bridges fixed. Uh, After that, I think the great hope for Rhode Island rests with regionalization. West Kanag? Uh, Well, I'm not sure. West Kanag was kind of a flop. But the idea that we have 39 cities and towns that may not need 39 police departments, separate boards of education, uh, fire departments, trash collection, schools, we've got to move in that direction. It's the only way we're probably going to lower property taxes. Now, uh, there are some things that will work. For example, a town like East Greenwich may be able to join up with a neighboring town for fire and police, but East Greenwich wouldn't benefit by partnering up with West Warwick for schools and education. Right. So there are going to be some exceptions made. But where it works, I think the taxpayer would welcome that if you could show them real savings without alienating the, the unions and the municipal workers who are part and parcel of this. Uh, but there's got to be a great consensus that, guys, if we're going to keep it going, we've all got to give up something. And probably regionalization fits in there somewhere. Yeah, I agree for sure. I, I, I went to Charaho, so I will say the one aspect of it that's, is, is, that's troubling to me is the human element of it. I grew up in Charlestown, much more of an independent, progressive community. Um, I grew up in the woods. I didn't grow up wealthy. But there were, you, know, you compare that to portions of Hopkinton, the gun sanctuary areas now. There was a real social divide and probably still is at Sharaho. Now, maybe that was good for me to be exposed to, but at the same time, that could never be massaged fully within the the eighth grade lunchroom, if you will. So I, that's something about Rhode Island that's, I don't know, could SK and NK get along or are there just too many old differences it, it, that you can't even put a, a word on. Yeah, I, I, listen, I think uh, savings is the great unifier. And yeah. if you could show me that you're going to lower my taxes uh, while keeping the municipal workers happy. Uh, I, I don't know that we can – we can't keep going the way we're going. We're going to hit a tipping point. We're going to hit a wall. It's going to hurt everybody. Uh, Judge Flanders, when he took over Central Falls, uh, his famous line was, a haircut is better than a beheading. Right. So <laughs> I think that, that we may want to put that on our license plate. Yeah. Well, Providence is certainly – do you think they should do, just go f- and declare bankruptcy and move on? I, I, Mayor Alorza told me on my radio show about a month ago that he doesn't think it's going to happen in his term. But if it's not turned around, it will come. He gave it 10 years out. Most people would give it five years out. Uh, he, there are structural problems in Providence. We were talking about education, schools, things like that. Do you know right now – this is a stunner. Only 10% of the kids in Providence can do grade-level math. Yeah, 15 Only on, 15 on English. Only 15 can read and do English. It's outrageous. That's not even a school system. That's – I don't know what. was daycare, a warehouse. 
what has happened to the hundreds of millions of dollars we've thrown at Providence over time? There needs to be a reckoning. There's people working on things that I've heard even in here, dual language immersion, really on rethinking the way that language is taught when maybe some classrooms are taught in multiple languages, whatever it may be, just getting kids to be able to be more engaged in the process. Do you feel like that that's, that's the way to do it? I mean, how can you correct Something that's so poor right now. You know, I, I don't know. And on the one hand, our kids today are so technologically savvy. How is it that they could, they could be so smart with some things and yet not so smart with others? How is it that we can't get basic English and math down and yet a kid could pick up a cell phone, surf the Internet and tell you anything you want to know or play a game with, with technological skill? So it's not that we, we haven't devolved. It hasn't been long enough for evolution right. to devolve us. If anything, we're, we're smarter, and yet our education system isn't working. How is that, that only 10% of the kids in Providence can do math? That is a stunner and an eye-opener, and it needs, a, it needs a reckoning. Yeah, and at the same time, the other stat is Dan McGowan first tweeted it, and I heard you say it on your radio show yesterday, that if Rhode Island were one district, we'd be in the bottom 10 compared to Massachusetts. Compared to Massachusetts. Right. So it's not as if the entire state – there are – Right moments, and then I had Senator Whitehouse in here. He said when he was at Central Falls High School, it's kind of to your point about technology. Walking around, going to some of the classrooms where kids were working on advanced graphic design, advanced specific projects. Right. Yeah, he said they were far superior to anything he had seen in other locations in the state. So it's it's just about retooling. It's not that everyone's dumb. No, it, it, either <laughs> no. we need a new way to teach math, yep. or we need to go back to the old way. Uh, to teach math that we know works. I'll give you a good example. When I was a freshman in high school, I, I had a difficult difficult time with algebra for whatever reason. Maybe it was the teacher. Maybe it was the subject. Maybe I was distracted a hundred different ways, but I was having a tough time with freshman algebra. And I remember coming home and sitting at my grandmother's table and I'm struggling through algebra. And my grandmother was born in 1910. I think she dropped out of school before the Depression to, to work in a factory. And she came over and she said, what, what are you doing? Um, I'm doing, she said, oh, I was always very good with figures. She can call it math, called it figures. And I was kind of half smirking under my breath, Graham, you know, how are you going to do algebra? She so took the pencil and she just went through it, boom, boom, boom. And so we learned this in third grade. Or we learned this in fourth grade. Can you imagine Right. That she not only learned it about six years before I did, but remembered it and was able to do the XY equation. Yeah. And then handed me the pencil and she walked away. And I was like floored. Yeah. And I said, How is that possible? So I think we have to go old school or completely new school because the school we're in now is failing. Yeah. Reading, writing, arithmetic, you know, the old. But how do we reinvent that but keep it that simple as well? well. Things, aren't things overcomplicated? I found that to be the case sometimes. You know, maybe we – let's teach kids how to do math the old-fashioned way but with great technological enhancements. Right. You know, education can be more entertaining now. This got back to entertainment. If you're not holding a kid's attention span, what good is it? If a kid is bored out of his skull, he's not going to learn. But if you make that – entertaining some way with our with our technology with our laptops with our graphics maybe that's a way maybe you teach the old stuff but in a new way do you remember having a really boring teacher absolutely right you know i mean i remember having them you're not going to do anything in that class right but the next year you have a terrific teacher and all of a sudden the same subject matter you're struggling with you're 
passing with flying colors. How is that possible? Yep. Yeah, the best teachers I've had were unbelievable performers. You know, I performers. can think of them. There's about five of them I can think of through my life, and they were unbelievable. It wasn't just like you say juggling. Sometimes that performance was being in a stern, strict, you know, behavior and, and kind of giving off. But at the end of the day, you knew that there was there was something there to catch your attention. Whatever, whether the guy was was funny or entertaining. Or grouchy and mean, yeah. or so grumpy that he was entertaining in and of itself, you learn the material. So there is something to be said about the performance and entertainment aspect of teaching material these days. But we touched on a point. How is it that kids are so smart, technologically savvy, and yet they're not getting the basic book math? There's something there. Yeah, fascinating stuff. Last uh, couple of minutes here. Media in general, I mean, you're at the top of television and radio in Rhode Island. Um, you know, there's new aspects of the Rhode Island media. We see the Boston Globe moving in. Yes. They scooped up three big-time names. We see there's some independent media outlets. The Public's Radio announced actually a couple of days ago they're opening a branch in Westerly and Newport. Mm-hmm. So there's changes, but at the same time, people still watch television and tune into the radio despite this notion that everything's shifting towards video on, on YouTube. And what's your perspective on where we're going? You know, um, well, radio, uh, what I do in the morning, I think there's always going to be a need for it. People want to get up in the morning, see what's going on overnight, get the local news, get their traffic and weather. Maybe not traffic so much because they can get ways now, but still they'll tune in for the traffic and the weather and what is Gene saying this morning and what happened overnight. Maybe they'll get a laugh along the way. So I think there's going to be a need for that content. And I think we deliver it on FM, AM radio as long as radios are in the car. Now, if someday the car makers decide not to put radios in or they make it very expensive to have that as an option, that's a game changer for terrestrial radio. That hasn't happened so far. Uh, I have Sirius XM. I listen to the music, but I'm on PRO all day. I, I was listening to PRO before yep. I even got it, worked, went to work for them. I'll switch around to the other stations. Um, so I think we have a future in radio as long as the radio's in the car. Uh, I think music has a more tenuous future because my kids get in the car and they don't listen to radio fm radio they plug their own music in yep but you can't do that with me that's right well i <laughs> yeah. mean not in real time i mean i mike frances is trying to work it out with his app you know you see all right boom he's here but it's not it's not the it's same. not the magic of for i was in a traffic i was in a, in a bad windstorm a couple like last year I'm, I'm with you i'm on pro all day as well and Hummel, you know, got me home in real time on, you know, with a real life. All right, yeah. there's a tree down on, on 114. So that that will never be replaced, as you say. I actually think local news, what I do, at least Morning Drive, has a stronger future than music radio. Yeah. Because music radio can be replaced by 100 different ways. And I think you're going to see that. But what I do, 6 to 9 every morning, Morning Drive, news talk, weather, entertainment, a gag, whatever it is, I think that has a future. Now, moving to television, um, I do the 6 o'clock news and I do the noon news. That's appointment viewing. That agent, that audience is aging. Uh, that doesn't mean that what I do, uh, an anchorman reading you the news, I think that'll be around as a format, as content. I don't know that people are going to be willing to wait for 6 o'clock every night to get it. It's probably going to move more to on-demand. It'll time shift. There may, I, I, you know, 
the whole network model may change. This is five to ten years away, I think, and we're still the big dog in town. I I just I think the journal has more of a challenge because the printing of a newspaper you could see that's evaporating absolutely and you have to monetize a website people don't like pop up ads they don't like distractions that's a challenge I think for internet based news it's not to say they can't figure it out but what does the journal do when the printing of a newspaper goes away does it become a website. Does it go and grab a local radio station? Does it go and buy a, a local television station and, and try to stay in the game? I think they have a challenge. Changes um, beyond what we know now? Are, do you anticipate there's going to be a new technology in the next five to ten years that you might be a part of? Something we don't we can't even put our, our finger on right now? I mean, is that are you kind of on your toes in both arenas that – you know, not too comfortable in the formats. Yeah, you know, I got into radio to keep my foot in two ponds. Yeah. You, you know, listen, you're only as good as, as your last newscast and, and as good as your ratings. Now, you know, you watch me at night, but you can't see just above me. There's this sort of Damocles hanging. Yeah. That's ready to cut <laughs> off any anchor's head, yep. no, no matter who you are. So it's good to stay good to stay ahead of the game. And remember that it's their sandbox, not yours. Yep. <laughs> you work for them, and you're a worker. Yeah. Gene Valicenti, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thanks for coming. Good luck with your podcast. Remember, new episodes of the Bartholomew Town Podcast every Tuesday and Friday. And you can support the Bartholomew Town Podcast by subscribing, rating, and reviewing on Apple Podcasts. Until next time, I'm Bill Bartholomew. We'll talk soon.